0: It's 1am on the 27th of May, 1726, aboard the slave ship Elizabeth. The captain, John Green, is sound asleep in his cabin. Meanwhile, the helmsman, Maurice Cunden, peacefully guides the vessel through the night towards Africa's Guinea coast. All is well, or so it seems, until a hand silently wraps around the helmsman's mouth, concealing his scream. A man whispers into his ear, damn you, if you stir hand or foot or speak a word, I'll blow your brains out. He slowly removes his hand and lifts the lining of his shirt to reveal a pistol tucked into his trousers. The message is understood. The conspirator slips down the companionway towards the captain's cabin with one other crewman following close behind him. They break into the captain's cabin, immediately waking him from his slumber. John Green sits bolt upright in a cold sweat to find his crewman, Alexander Mitchell, and his bosun. William Fly, both gripping pistols, pointed directly at him. Captain Green takes a moment to grasp the gravity of what's unfolding before him in the dead of night. Mutiny. Still rubbing the sleep and the disbelief from his eyes, He's strong-armed out of bed, thrown out of his cabin, and sent sprawling onto the main deck. Without warning or explanation, the bosun William Fly begins fiercely beating his captain, occasionally yelling and cursing about justice finally being served. Captain Green's muffled cries and pleas come from beneath his bloodied hands and arms, desperately covering his head. The fly He's like a man possessed, a demon hell-bent on unleashing his pent-up fury. He grabs the weeping merchant captain and attempts to throw him over the handrail into the dark waters below. John Green cries out, For God's sake, bosun, don't throw me overboard, for if you do, I shall go to hell. He begs for some time, gripping onto the handrail until one of Fly's co-conspirators, who have now congregated on the deck, hands Fly a cooper's broad axe, with his face set like stone. In one swift action, Fly swings the axe down and severs the captain's hand, which remains gripping onto the railing. Screaming, Green staggers back in shock, staring at his mangled arm, before a number of his former crew rush forward, lift him up and launch him over the side, into the deep. By now, the whole ship is awake, including the loyal first mate, Thomas Jenkins, who has been listening from his cabin, knowing that he's likely next. He's not wrong. The conspirators drag him out onto the deck, kicking and screaming, The same bloodied axe is brought to bear, shattering his shoulder before he too is thrown overboard. The bloody mutiny has succeeded, and William Fly, the ringleader, becomes the newly elected captain of the ship. He breathes a sigh of relief. All is well. Or so it seems. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonnie and Mary Reid. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Whether the rest of Fly's crew agree on the decision to turn pirate is anyone's guess. But having seen Fly's brutal determination in action, any doubters most likely keep their concerns to themselves. For many of them, the decision will prove fatal. William Fly's pirate career, such as it is, will last for a grand total of one month and five days. Despite this, he will leave behind a powerful legacy. His story is one of conflicting narratives, a struggle between the romantic idea of pirates, popularized in print and on stage, and the harsh realities of a life at sea. Like so many, Fly's story starts with a desperate decision taken in the dead of night, a rash moment that commits him to a path from which he can never return. And like so many others, he'll claim his hand was forced so to speak. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Read.
1: So the reasons why William Fly became a pirate is kind of a combination of his idealization of pirates he already knew about. And also, yes, the conditions on the ship he was working on. So when he himself was a sailor, he claims that the wages were withheld and that the captain of the ship was doling out harsh punishments. Whether or not all of this was true remains to be seen. But William Fly did successfully manage to lead a mutiny, and he did become captain of this particular ship, which means that he was able to get the other sailors to follow him, which means, yes, they probably felt the captain wasn't making very many good decisions.
0: Fly makes a leap into the unknown. Born out of desperation, perhaps, it's still a leap of faith faith in his own abilities, and faith that he'll succeed where so many pirates have failed. By
1: 1726, when William Fly becomes a pirate, the reality is the Royal Navy has a much larger presence. The trading lanes are way busier and a lot more heavily patrolled. And as a result, it's just going to be very difficult to go in and try to steal anything. And also a lot of people don't really see piracy as being worth it anymore because the risks are now really heavily outweighing any reward that they would possibly have
0: despite the mounting evidence that piracy's days are done Fly's decision can be understood given the cultural backdrop it just so happens that the very moment pirates are being driven to extinction the public's attention is at an all-time high You'd be forgiven for thinking piracy is in its heyday, when the daring exploits of pirate captains are everywhere you look. In newsletters, histories, novels and plays, church sermons, trials and mass executions from whopping to West Africa. Fly is just one of many thousands of English-speaking people giddy with pirate fever.
1: William Fly still wanted to be this kind of last grand, great pirate. And this is because he has grown up during the era of the golden age of piracy when we're seeing all the most infamous pirate captains. He was young when he was hearing about Blackbeard and Benjamin Hornigold and Charles Vane and Bonnie and Mary Read. They've been very heavily romanticized. He probably was familiar with the publication, A General History of the Pirates, which was published in 1724 and a smash hit on both sides of the Atlantic. Pirate trials and last dying speeches, they're getting published and they're being widely read for cheap so anyone could access them. So he's definitely either read them himself or he's heard people talking about them.
0: Fly may well be aware that the stories of pirate kingdoms and buried treasure are fantastical but he may also still harbour hope that the possibility still exists. He renames his ship Fame's Revenge, a name steeped in pirate legend, a nod perhaps to the revenge of Steed Bonnet or Jack Rackham, and perhaps a nod to pirate's public standing. But once free to live the pirate life, the reality starts to bite. From the endless days of inactivity and the fruitless search for rich prizes, to the management of a mutinous crew being a captain is no easy job he believes the only way up is to strike big or die trying
1: William fly made lots of questionable decisions as a pirate captain his main goal it seemed was to just get the largest and fastest ship he could So he's initially got the revenge and he's like, this ship is fine, but he wants to get one that's faster. So he says, we're going to sail north. We're going to head to Nova Scotia because there's a whole bunch of fishing lanes up there. But the crew, for the most part, they didn't think this was a very good idea because in order to get up to Nova Scotia, they're going to have to sail up the entire coast of North America. And so as a result, they're going to run into a lot more risks.
0: Fly and his crew are reported to call themselves gentlemen of fortune. Perhaps signalling that it is fate that has pushed them to this end, not ambition or greed. In any case, these gentlemen of fortune soon discover that fate is a hard master. Fly's pirates are unable to capture anything of real value. A failure made worse by the fact that New England's sea lanes are crowded with ships. Too crowded. Long gone are the days of richly stocked merchant vessels sailing alone and undefended. But hope springs eternal, and the promise of a big score seems to be just beyond the horizon. Ignoring the growing complaints of his crew, Fly insists that North America is where they'll capture a great ship and seek their fortunes. Through the month of June 1726, The pirates do plunder a handful of vessels, though none carry any booty of worth. The only silver lining is that they manage to find new crewmen, or rather they take hostages that they hope will become crewmen, one of whom is an excellent navigator named William Atkinson. Atkinson at first refuses, but Fly makes him an offer that he can't refuse, join or have his brains blown out.
1: A lot of prisoners on pirate ships generally were pretty much confined in the hold. They might get beaten, they might have food withheld, and the idea is to get them to become a member of the pirate crew. So this way they could replace their crew members and have a larger amount of people, so that way they could fight more ships, get more goods. But the problem is you also could never fully trust a prisoner because you don't know if they're going to try to escape, you don't know if they're going to try to betray you.
0: While Atkinson is forced to navigate for the pirates, he plans to lead them astray, but rather than just run the ship aground, Atkinson exploits the pirates' reliance on him. Instead, he works hard to gain their trust. In no time, he finds himself in the captain's good books, lulling fly into a false sense of security. It's the 23rd of June, 1726 at Browns Bank, 60 miles south of Nova Scotia, Canada. Summer hasn't yet reached this far north, and the revenge cuts through a freezing squall. Fly captures a small fishing vessel called the James. At best, their prize is a haul of cod and a decent meal. But in the distance, William Fly spots a promising schooner. His recent failures have made him impulsive. He loads most of his loyal men onto the speedy fishing boat, the James, and orders it to chase after the schooner. Fly stays behind on the revenge with three other pirates to keep an eye on the 15 or so fishermen they've just captured, along with the well-like navigator, William Atkinson. Of the other three crewmen, only one is really fit for duty, the second being chained up on suspicion of mutiny, whilst the third is completely drunk. Fly stands on his quarter-deck, anxiously monitoring the progress of the James from astern. When Atkinson calls for his attention, the navigator is suddenly full of excitement, jumping up and down from the far end of the ship. Leaning over the bow, he points wildly Sails. He spotted a fleet of vessels on the horizon and calls the captain over. Fly sprints over, and Atkinson hands him the spyglass. But Fly doesn't see anything. Atkinson tells him to check again, says he's looking in the wrong place. In his panic, Fly is unaware of the two other men creeping up behind him. And is taken off guard when Atkinson snatches his arms, pinning them behind his back. The other prisoners, seeing what's unfolding, now rush over to help hold the captain down. But Fly gets an arm free and swings punches at any face he can land one on. A scuffle breaks out. In the commotion, the other two pirates quickly surrender. The ship is soon taken and William Fly is held fast to the deck. Atkinson stands over the still struggling pirate captain. It is his turn to press the barrel of a pistol at Fly's head. He informs him he is a dead man if he did not immediately submit himself to be his
1: prisoner. Now, how was Fly able to be attacked by one of his own prisoners? It seems that he ended up having kind of a cordial relationship, or so he thought, with William Atkinson. Now, this was probably all an act on Atkinson's part. He seemed to really understand what he needed to do to try to bring a pirate captain down. William Fly also has probably become quite ambitious, a bit big for his britches, we should say, in that he would never assume someone would dare try to overtake him the way that he overtook another captain. So his big mistake is literally turning his back for an instant.
0: Having seized control, Atkinson soon turns the ship around and sails straight for New England, leaving the pirate crew on board the James heading off in the other direction. Fly curses his treacherous navigator and wishes that all the devils of hell would come and fly away with the ship. A fate surely better than what awaits him in Boston. It's July 1726. The day after Fly's trial, where he was found guilty of several acts of piracy, mutiny, felony, and robbery, as well as committing murder upon the high seas. Despite pleading not guilty, with ample witness testimony against him, including the deposition of his captor, William Atkinson, the trial was a simple formality. In the span of two weeks, Fly has been tricked. Tried and sentenced to hang, he now sits in jail with just six days left to live. Enter 63-year-old Puritan minister, Reverend Dr. Cotton Mather, who comes to renew the pirates' broken spirits, hoping to mold them into something better, something godly. And if Fly's spirit isn't yet broken, Mather will break it for him. The Puritan minister begins his conference by sermonizing at length about all the horrors of hell that awaits those facing eternal damnation. By the time he's through, two of the condemned pirates are a quivering wreck, alternately cursing their luck and weeping for their souls. From there, it's no trouble for Mather to get the pirates to repent and acknowledge they deserve the grim fate that lies in store. They're soon on their knees, begging the good reverend to pray for them, to advise them, to save them. William Fly, on the other hand, despite his youth, remains stoic and steadfast. He sits on his small iron cot in contemptuous silence, only occasionally moved by the mewling of his fellows to spit or snarl in disgust. Mather steals himself and having dealt with the others, turns his full attention to Fly. Bewilderingly, the pirate still maintains his innocence. Fly has the audacity to deny having murdered Captain John Green, but he jokes that he might like to do harm to the traitor who turned him in, William Atkinson. Mather is shocked at the pirate's impudence. He begs Fly to at least be at peace, to give up the malice he holds towards his former crewmate. The fly is adamant and blasphemous. I cannot forgive him. God Almighty, revenge me on him. It is a vain thing. I won't die with a lie in my mouth. Mather despairs. Fly, thou talkst like a madman. The interview hasn't started well.
2: The floorboards creak. The walls, they moan. The house seems vacant, but you're not alone. This October, Parcast invites you to celebrate the spookiness of the Halloween season with all new episodes of Haunted Places. From an infamous murder farm in Indiana to the ghostly tombs and palaces of ancient Egypt, visit the world's most haunted destinations and find out what happens when a soul leaves the body but doesn't leave the grounds. Enjoy new episodes of Haunted Places all month long, free, and only on Spotify.
0: It's been two years since Cotton Mather last ministered to condemned pirate. Perhaps he's lost his touch. That man was John Archer a truly repentant sinner who was deeply sorry for his actions. A far cry from William Fly. Archer's purity at the end gave Mather hope and reminded him of his own humanity. He still genuinely wants to save Fly's soul if he can. But perhaps the 63-year-old minister also feels the hand of fate on his shoulder. Long ago, at the 1718 hanging of Sam Bellamy's pirate crew, he once famously, and wrongly, declared, Behold, the end of piracy. He couldn't have imagined the terror from the seas would go on as long as it has. From the moment Fly arrived in Boston Harbor, Mather knew that this might be it, his chance to have the final word on one of the greatest social crises of their age, He tries all he can to repeat his success with Archer on Fly. For this pirate has no intention of becoming some sniveling supplicant. Instead, Fly goes on the attack, mocking the minister's well-known sermon, The Converted Sinner, his account of the salvation of John Archer. Fly mystifies Cotton Mather in every way. He's intelligent, literate, and self-aware, He's well-read and understands the popular public status of pirates. Having read Mather's sermons, and most likely Charles Johnson's 1724 bestseller, A General History, Fly knows everything he says will be recorded and published thereafter. By putting on a show for the minister, he is effectively writing his own history, his own legend, It's the 9th of July, 1726, three days before the execution. Mather and Fly meet for a second time in Boston prison, where the fight for salvation continues. Infuriating for Mather, Fly fundamentally refuses to accept his situation. He resolutely maintains his innocence regarding the murder charge against him. But Cotton Mather soon realises the pirate's claim isn't born from delusion, but from a sincere moral conviction. Fly believes the trial verdict is an injustice. I can't charge myself. I shan't own myself guilty of any murder. Our captain and his mate used us barbarously. We poor men can't have justice done to us the old minister can't stand it anymore and storms away. He's heard it all before. Always the same excuse. But enraged as Mather may be, putting aside the pirate's many sins, the words still have the ring of truth, and he knows it. Dr. Stephen Pitt is a maritime historian and authority on colonial Boston.
2: He came into that engagement with mather defiant hardened in his beliefs that the system that sailors worked in was wrong and that what he did murdering the ship captain being part of that mutiny that was the consequence and therefore it really wasn't murder in his mind he thought of it as he was the victim and the captain was the abuser and they took action against him so he was very hardened in, in that belief in particular and it's that issue that mather could never convince him otherwise that he was the bad guy
0: in fly's eyes authority has failed him everywhere from the navy to his merchant captain to the admiralty court it's no wonder he refuses to acknowledge mather's moral authority the harder Matha tries, the more obstinate Fly becomes. Until he finally breaks the minister's patience. Miserable man, you know the word of God that no murderer has eternal life. I have done with you. He may not know it, but Fly's defiance as a prisoner becomes his greatest act as a pirate.
1: When he was in prison, he was able to take complete control of the situation. He refused to repent to Cotton Mather. He refused to pray. He refused to hear any sort of gospel or anything like that. But this is really frustrating for Cotton Mather because no matter what, he can't break this pirate, no matter what he's trying to do.
0: Sometime later, Mather returns and appeals to fly to attend church one final time. Even if he won't repent, the Puritan minister still worries for his soul. Unsurprisingly, Fly refuses the offer. But his reason does come as a surprise. The self-righteous pirate suddenly becomes quiet and withdrawn. In a hushed voice, he says that he doesn't wish to be an object of gaze for the mob. Reverend Mather is taken aback. This raging devil-may-care pirate is transformed, but why? Is he shy? Scared? Embarrassed? He's not sure. But he suddenly seems human after all. Mather concedes defeat and leaves the pirate. The next time they'll meet, it will be on the gallows, in front of a roaring crowd. And it will be Mather's last chance to bring Fly back into the light. Pirate or Puritan? Who will have the last word? In the week before the execution, Boston grows increasingly excited. Fly will be the first pirate hanged in New England in over two years, and in that time, public interest has blown up. While pirates are still a threat, they're becoming more remote, more exotic. While Mather wants to use the occasion to show the public that the moral threat posed by piracy is still real, Fly is relying on the publicity to bear witness to his final stand.
2: Sensationalized accounts in colonial American newspapers do kind of begin with these pirate executions. Many of these pirates do see themselves as anti-heroes, that they're trying to gain a name for themselves. So I think that it's a combination of the media at the time sensationalizing pirates, but also the pirate captains themselves seeking reputation.
0: It's the 12th of July. 1726, the long-awaited day of the execution of William Fly and his two confederates. A cart is brought to Boston jail to transport the condemned men to the execution place at the harbor's edge. Fly, inexplicably, is in high spirits as he leaps up onto the cart. Thousands of people line the streets, cheering as he passes by. The growing mob are as eager for the show to start as Fly seems to be. Holding a colorful bunch of flowers in his hands, Fly waves to the crowd. His crowd. The spectators lap it up. They love the lively ones. Once they arrive at the gallows, Fly spots Mather and two other Ministers waiting for him. Dressed in black vestments, heads solemnly bowed, they stand in stark contrast to the colorful character of this pirate on parade. Mather scowls under a furrowed brow, equally mystified and enraged, and how Fly plays to the crowd. The 26-year-old pirate jauntily jogs up the scaffold straight past the waiting clergyman and makes a beeline for the waiting noose striding up to it he proceeds to tug at the hangman's rope before sneering and scratching his head in mock confusion he loudly reproaches the executioner for not understanding his trade scolding him for tying such a poor knot Fly makes a great show of retying the noose himself with a mariner's skill so that it would not come undone with the weight of his own hanging body. The crowd goes wild for Fly's irreverent antics and his undoubted courage. Meanwhile, Martha, glowering, grows more irate. The local ministers begin their prayers. The difference between Fly and the two other pirates couldn't be greater. Trembling, they give a speech warning others about the cost of cursing, drinking, and breaking of the Sabbath. They beg forgiveness and offer their final pleas for God to have mercy on their poor souls. Finally, Fly takes the spotlight again. Mather draws breath and offers a silent prayer of his own he prays that William Fly might finally admit his sins before God. He doesn't harbor much hope, himself later noting that Fly looked about him unconcerned. Indeed, Fly steps forward and proudly declares his innocence, announcing he was not afraid to die and that he had wronged no man. He also offers a sinister warning to all ship's captains not to end up like the unfortunate John Green. All masters of vessels might take warning by the fate of the captain to pay sailors their wages when due and to treat them better that their barbarity to them made so many turn pirates. The message is clear. If the authorities abuse their power, they should expect, and even deserve, a bloody end. In the wild cheering and jeering of the crowd, It's impossible to tell who is in agreement and who isn't, but all are whipped into a frenzy by the young criminal. They certainly admire Fly's fearlessness and must acknowledge his hatred of authority far overwhelms his fear of death or damnation. In his final moments, Fly is the very model of the rebellious pirate. With that, he places the noose around his own neck trying to conceal the trembling of his hands, before looking out into the audience one last time. He summons his strength and says, if the other two be ready, then so am I. The trapdoor opens, and the ropes snap tight. Cotton Mather bows his head. He has failed to bring Fly back into the light and save his soul from eternal suffering. But perhaps more than that, he's failed to direct what may prove to be the final performance of this decades long moral tragedy.
1: It's kind of personal as well, because to Mather it's signifying his own failure. He's built his reputation on being the reformer of pirates. And now this last pirate, again, this is probably one of the first real public executions of a pirate to happen in a few years at this point. And it's kind of his big way of making one final grand statement towards the end of his career. And William Fly won't give it to him. So in the end, for Cotton Mather, this is going to be a bitter frustration.
0: Mather eventually collects his notes from his interactions with Fly and writes a sermon titled, A vial poured out upon the sea. He can still have the final word. Unlike his previous print about John Archer, the converted sinner, this work is about the folly of dying without accepting the Lord's grace. As Mather puts it, they who die in their sins, these die without wisdom. Sin is folly. Every sinner is a fool. But as Mather approaches his conclusions, he's left to ponder the past 26 years he's spent with pirates. He can't help but hear their voices as he tries to better understand their fates.
2: Mather says to Fly, at one point, he says, You don't understand what's going on here. You're too much in, in a rage. And you you clearly are uncontrolled. And Fly returns that, how could you know more about me than I know about myself? And it was a moment where Fly really sticks it to Mather in that he just couldn't understand his experiences and his life. And I think it may have been a moment where Mather recognized in some ways that no, he couldn't understand that life. And perhaps he reflected back on his experience with Archer and his success there, but also perhaps he reflected back on his own son who had turned to the sea, lived a very different life than Mather himself, and perhaps he began to, if not understand, at least relate to his own son's experience as a seafarer through the lens that Fly had provided for him.
0: Sure enough, the truth becomes so impossible to ignore that even piracy's harshest critic has to agree with that last abominable sinner. That society creates the monsters they so revile. Pirates are not simply born. They're also made. In Mather's published sermon, he writes, I would presume upon an address to the masters of our vessels that they would not be too like the devil in their barbarous usage of the men that are under them, and lay them under temptations to do desperate things. The men must be used as rational creatures, yea, master, you must remember your men. Don't you call them so? Even the very word Matha uses to describe the sailor's treatment, barbarous, is identical to how Fly described it himself in prison. Perhaps in the end, it is William Fly who has the last word. William Fly's death marks the end of the golden age of piracy. The great threat has been extinguished. His legacy is something he was acutely aware of during his final days. Two years later, his sorry story is included in Charles Johnson's reissue of a general history of the pirates and he passes into legend just as he hoped. The mythology that has grown around pirates was forged in their own time, in church pulpits, in the press, in poems and plays. They rose to become an outsized evil, larger than life monsters, as well as exotic symbols of social revolution. Cotton Mather dedicated a large part of his life working with pirates. But in the end, whatever else they might have been, sinners or criminals, he recognized a simple truth. Push any sailor over the edge to a place where there's no coming back. Then prepare to watch the black flag rise and the world burn. Next time on Real Pirates. We tell one last tale from the golden age of Atlantic piracy. A story that's never been fully told before. Not all pirates were hounded out of existence. No doubt some slipped off the map into quiet retirement. But one man was to be the exception that proves the rule for the rest. If you're in the right place, at the right time, piracy can still pay and that power might still be leveraged into future success. Find out next time on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Burrow for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by Aman Khalid. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matias Torres-Sole. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.